There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Dr. Elizabeth Clotus is our guest this week. She's a cardiologist who trained at Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins and practices in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She's the author of the book, Slay the Giant, The Power of Prevention and Defeating Heart Disease, and founder of Step One Foods, a company dedicated to helping patients minimize their dependence on medications through strategic dietary change. Dr. Clotus, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, it's great to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your time. And I want to thank my wife for finding the article that connected us. So I have to give her a little shout out before we start. I'm always fascinated by the professions that people choose and why they choose them. And you really have two professions. You're a cardiologist and food as medicine innovator and entrepreneur. Let's start with the first one. What drew you to specialize in cardiology and kept you motivated to go through the years and years of training to get where you are? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was honestly, I was fascinated with everything in medical school, but it's hard to ignore the heart. It is a miraculous organ. I mean, it beats, you know, 60 times a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for a hundred years. It just keeps going and going and going. It's incredible. And heart disease is also the number one killer of Americans. And honestly, I thought the, the cardiovascular system was fascinating. I thought I could, you know, make a dent in, in heart disease. I, I went into it to help, to help cure the, the number one killer of, of Americans. Um, but what I found as I was in practice was that what I was treating was actually the wrong thing. Um, I was treating high cholesterol and high blood pressure and high blood sugar and, you know, coronary disease and, and so forth. But if you peel it all back, the root cause of that is poor nutrition. And that's when I got really fascinated with food and with using food as part of the treatment plan and certainly the prevention plan for cardiovascular disease. And that's what ultimately led me to to start a food company. So here I am. I, I never would have, you know, in a million years, you know, predicted in medical school that one day I would start a food company. But that's what I ended up doing. And I love it. Here you are. You mentioned a few times that heart disease is the number one killer in America. How many people die of that each year? And is that trend line pointed up or down? And what are the reasons? Yeah. So heart disease is, um, like I said, the number one killer. It is, it doesn't discriminate between men and women. It kills more men than all other causes of death. It kills more women than all other causes of death. Actually, specifically, this is important to mention, you know, women are very focused on, on breast cancer and cancer deaths. And this is not to minimize breast cancer or cancer in any way. Cancer is a terrible disease. But just to put things in perspective, one out of 30 women will die of breast cancer, horrible. One out of three will die of heart disease. So heart diseases are disease. It's disease of women. 
in if you look at the latest statistics and they go back to 2019 even though they were they were announced in 2022 about 875,000 deaths from cardiovascular disease in the United States alone um, per year and that's basically translates to you know someone having a heart attack every 40 seconds someone having a fatal stroke every three and a half minutes in, in our country. So it's, it, it's a devastating, highly prevalent disease. And in terms of the, the latter part of your question, you know, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? You know, for a while, um, it was getting better. You know, statins, cholesterol-lowering medications, all these medications that have been developed, the procedures, were really helping people live longer. The problem is we've in many ways outstripped what those medications can do. Our lifestyle factors have deteriorated further. Obesity rates are exploding. Diabetes rates are exploding. And, and really, we've, we've kind of reached a tipping point where the gains we've made were starting to, to, um, to unwind. And I think it's going to be especially a big problem as we emerge from COVID. You know, during COVID, a lot of preventive care, a lot of routine medical care was was set aside, right? People were afraid to go to the doctors. We were, you know, we weren't encouraging people to, to seek out non-essential, non-emergency care. And I think this is, and I'm already seeing this in, in my practice, people coming back with worse risk factors, worse, you know, poorly managed. And that's just down the road going to translate to higher rates of, of cardiovascular disease and death. Well, and speaking about you know obesity and uh, and COVID, do you feel that COVID increased the obesity rate because people were to your point were, were locked in, they weren't seeking treatment? Yeah, and the you know the things we were doing that help curb obesity, for example, going to the gym, right? That that went away. No one was you know no one was going out to exercise. No one was um, you know was was engaging in in those regular activities. We were more sedentary. We were at home, and we were eating comfort foods uh, because it's what we love. And it was a scary time, and it's all very understandable. But but it it took us backwards in terms of our health. You know, it's interesting. I'm so thrilled you're here today because we've had a lot of conversations around mental health on this show. Uh, and in particular, as we come out the, the other side of COVID, we clearly need to have more conversations around physical health, you know, and particularly heart health. Uh, to that point, you know, we had the comfort foods for, for two plus years, didn't care. We wore our sweats to our Zoom calls and nobody could see anything and elastic waistbands were our best friends. Uh, and so I appreciate you raising that point because now that can give us, you know, a, a new direction uh, to, to focus here on. When it comes to heart disease, there's obviously so much to talk about, but the issue for millions of people is their cholesterol. Mm -hmm. What are LDL and HDL and how does each affect our health? So when we get a cholesterol profile, we typically get four numbers. We get the total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and triglycerides. Most people remember their total cholesterol because it's just one number, but actually that value is probably the least important of the four because the total is made up of good cholesterol, which is HDL, bad cholesterol, LDL, and triglycerides. And you can have various combinations of those and get to the same total number, but with very different health implications. So 
HDL, good cholesterol. It's the, if you want to remember which is which, H, happy, you want to keep it high. This is the cholesterol that's not depositing in our arteries. It's on its way out. So you actually want this number as high as possible. In men, we like to see it over 40. In men, in women, we like to see it over 50. In general, the higher, the better. Although at some point, the protective effect of this kind of wears off. When you get close to 100, and very few people are at those levels, but when you get to those levels, it you know it sort of levels off in terms of how, how much additional protection it provides. LDL allows you want to keep it low. This is the cholesterol that's potentially depositing in our arteries. So a lot of focus is is on LDL because this is this is the cholesterol we're trying to lower through nutrition, through medications, etc. Um, in most cardiologists would say, boy, everybody should be under one thirty for LDL. As you accumulate risk factors, and that might be a history of smoking, you have high blood pressure, a strong family history of heart disease, closer to 100 would be, would be ideal. Once you have documented coronary or vascular disease or you're a diabetic, because diabetics are at very high risk of developing heart issues, so you've had a stroke, heart attack, bypass surgery, stent, you know, or, or like I said, you're diabetic, LDL should be under 70. And there's even data to suggest that under 50 is additionally protective. So the main message about LDL is the lower, the better. Triglycerides are the last component of the cholesterol profile, and they're actually not much of a cholesterol particle. They're mostly fat, which is why you can't add up the three numbers to get the total. The formula is LDL, bad cholesterol, plus HDL, good cholesterol, plus one-fifth of the triglycerides get you to the total. Normal triglyceride levels are under 150. The only one thing I'll say about triglycerides that's important to keep in mind is that they're a different animal. They live on a different scale. The The lowest I've ever seen is 27. This is somewhat on no medications, but the highest I've seen is, you know, well over 2000. So it's a ginormous scale and everyone's supposed to be clustered under 150, but absolute changes in triglycerides are often more of a shoulder shrug than, you know, even though they might look impressive in absolute numbers, but everyone should be under 150. And do we get most or all of our cholesterol from the food we eat or does our body produce it in some other way? Ah, so there are, let's focus on LDL because that is the, the most important particle of, of the, you know, of the cholesterol profile in terms of risk. So for LDL, we either make too much internally, we get rid of too little or we don't use enough. And actually cholesterol from food is a minor component. There, there are other much more powerful factors at play. Okay, we make too much. There's an enzyme in the liver called HMG-CoA reductase. It's not important to remember the name other than that's the enzyme that statins work on. HMG-CoA reductase drives LDL production. And it's influenced by many factors, including insulin levels, exercise levels, our weight, you know, how much sugar we eat, et cetera. But it, it's also at some point driven by genetics. So, you know, no matter how much, you know, how many vegetables you eat, no matter how many triathlons you run, no matter how thin you are, at some point you reach a a sort of a floor below which you can't get in terms of your LDL numbers because you have a genetic blueprint that says, I don't care, knock yourself out. The, the lowest LDL I'm going to, 
allow because otherwise I'm going to make more is I'm just picking a number out of the air is 120. Okay. The good news is, is be, if you eliminate all the other factors that might be driving HMG-CoA reductase and you're just left with the genetic component, even tiny doses of statins can bottom out that number. Some people are very good LDL producers and they respond very well to statins. Okay, make too much. Number two, get rid of too little. We have an elimination pathway that involves bile. So bile is a substance we make in the liver to help digest food. Bile is very cholesterol rich. It's one of the things we use circulating LDL to make. And every single time we eat, we dump a bunch of bile into the digestive system. It's used up and, and out it goes. So that's one way we get rid of LDL because we always need to have bile ready for the next meal. So we pull more LDL to make bile for the next meal. Some people are very efficient. Rather than wasting any bile that didn't get used up in the digestive process, they reabsorb it. They put it back, which means they need to pull less LDL from the bloodstream to make bile for the next meal, and their LDL levels stay up. This is where the original cholesterol-lowering drugs worked. They were called bile acid resins or bile acid sequestrants, and they literally bound bile in the digestive system and you eliminate it through the stool. And it worked, LDL levels dropped. The problem was they were messy powders, or you had to take eight pills a day, people got digestive upset. So, we dropped people's LDL, but it was a pretty miserable experience. So when statins came along, these medications really fell out of favor. But this is where food comes in because you can use food to help increase bile wasting through increasing fiber intake because fiber binds bile in the digestive system and, and helps usher it out. And through plant sterols, which are natural plant components that compete with bile for reabsorption. So you reabsorb less. Okay, make too much, get rid of too little, <laughs> or don't use enough. The don't use enough goes to LDL receptors. We have little grabbers on our cells that take LDL from, from the bloodstream and, and bring that LDL inside our cells to be used for various functions. We need cholesterol. We make hormones. We make cell walls with it. The truth is we can make most of the LDL or cholesterol that we need inside our cells. We don't actually need a lot of it circulating in our bloodstreams. In fact, levels around 30, remember we were talking about 130, 170, 50, levels around 30 are perfectly safe and, and actually found in, in most mammals. So you don't need a lot of circulating LDL for optimal cellular and, and body function. But if it's circulating around, we'll, we'll take it, right? We don't have to make it inside. We'll, we'll just grab it. These receptors are influenced by many things. So saturated fats, they, they reduce how well those, those receptors work and LDL levels rise. So that's how saturated fats raise LDL. Estrogen helps uh, receptors bloom. So when women go through menopause, that, that stimulus to grow those LD, LDL receptors goes away and their, and their cholesterol tends to go up with, with menopause. There's also an enzyme called PCSK9. The name's not important other than it controls um, 
receptor levels, and that's the target for the latest group of cholesterol-lowering drugs that you may have seen on TV. You know, Repath, Apraluent, Levquio, you know, like, oh, I don't, you know, the, the guy that walks around like, I don't have time for to manage my cholesterol. I just get two shots a year and my cholesterol is perfect. Well, th th those are biologics and they work on, on that enzyme. And they can drop LDL quite markedly because when you get rid of PCSK9, these, these little receptors flourish and you start bringing LDL back into the, into the cells. So there's three major, major factors. And if you notice, I didn't talk much about cholesterol in food because there's so, there's so many more powerful things at play here. Some people, and I mentioned this before, my wife included, can't figure out why their cholesterol is so high, especially if they exercise, don't eat that much red meat. What percentage of people have high cholesterol, even though they have good health? Yes. Yeah, so familial hypercholesterolemia, so this is purely genetic, very high LDL levels, is actually quite uncommon. It affects about one out of 200 people, which means 199 out of 200, you know, their high cholesterol is driven in part by, by lifestyle factors. But like I mentioned before, you're going to reach kind of genetic you know, bottoms beyond which you cannot influence things anymore. So you're going to reach a, a genetic bottom of how how active your HMG-CoA reductase is and how much your your you, you, LDL you make in the liver. You're going to have a specific genetic makeup that determines how well you reabsorb bile. You're, you're going to have some influence through hormones, especially, and also genetics in terms of PCSK9 activity in terms of those LDL receptors. So you can have a, a genetic, you know, not genetic predisposition necessarily to high, super high cholesterol, but maybe genetic barriers to reducing it to the level that you need it to be at for your particular health situation. And that's where medications and then food interventions can really make a difference. We've been talking about cholesterol but another major health threat is high blood sugar. Both obviously are bad, but is one worse than the other? Well, both are bad. <laughs> so it's like, you know, which, which, which evil do, do, I, do I pick as being worse? If I had to pick one, I would have to say it's blood sugar because high blood sugar influences a lot of different things, right? High cholesterol is really focused on accumulation of gunk in our, in our arteries and, um, and so it's it's kind of a a one hit wonder from a or or or, or one one evil per um, per risk. Whereas blood sugar elevations have wide ranging effects. Not only do they affect you know cholesterol levels, so so they're going to affect LDL. They also affect nerves. They also affect kidneys. They, you know, they um, so and 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 our eyes. So they can interfere with long-term vision, kidney function, at, can aid atherosclerosis, and and predispose people to neuropathy. So I would have to say, high blood sugars over the long haul are are absolutely the the worst the worst of the two. You mentioned statins earlier in the show. Statins are considered the gold standard for treating high cholesterol, but are they for everybody? So, you know, I prescribe statins all the time. Yeah, and I started a food company. So, so you know, 
put that, you have, we have to put this in perspective. Some people should be on statin medications. So there are three main groups where statins have been shown to improve outcomes. And that's why we put people on medications. It's not to make numbers look perfect. It's to help them live longer, better. And if you already have heart or vascular disease, so you've had a heart attack, a stent, bypass surgery, stroke, you should be on a statin because we know those individuals live longer, better when they're on those medications, frankly, irrespective of their cholesterol levels. Number two, patients with familial hypercholesterolemia, those individuals with super high LDL that are purely genetically driven, a lifetime exposure to very high LDL levels really accelerates the buildup of gunk in our arteries. Those people should be on statins. We have good data to show that they benefit from that. Diabetics. If you're a diabetic, especially type 2 between the, well, and type 1, but diabetic between the ages of 40 and 70, you should be on a statin. Diabetics, you know, die of heart and vascular disease, not of high blood sugar. It's their number one killer. So again, we want to throw the kitchen sink at them in terms of prevention and statins may make an impact. Okay. Those, those individuals should be on statins. However, the vast majority of statin prescriptions are handed out just for high cholesterol alone. There are 94 million Americans who are candidates for statin drugs based upon that criteria. Well, that's crazy. You know, if, if I just mentioned that very few people have cholesterol levels that are purely, purely, purely driven by genetics. For most of us, there's a lifestyle contribu contribution. For those of us don't need, that don't need to automatically be on a statin, shouldn't we try modifying lifestyle first? And especially food, because food has the greatest ability to impact one of the major drivers of, of high cholesterol, which is you don't get rid of enough. And your, your LDL receptors through saturated fats and HMG-CoA reductase through insulin. So we can impact a lot of the cholesterol pathways through the, through the foods we eat. Why don't we try that first? It's a novel idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> Watch what you eat. Yeah. So to me, it seems that the traditional physician response to both high cholesterol and high blood sugar and a lot of other medical conditions for that matter is to prescribe a drug regimen. Why do doctors prescribe so many drugs? Or maybe the better question is, why do doctors prescribe medication as a first line of defense? The truth is, this is what we are taught to do. If I look back on my education from the time I finished high school to the time I hung up my cardiology shingle, it was 14 years of education, 14 years of that time how much was spent on nutrition? Zero. Not zero years or zero months or zero weeks, zero hours, nothing. I got zero nutrition education. Now, things are changing a little bit that, you know, nutrition is starting to come, come into medical education, but, but the current, you know, minimum requirement is 25 hours, which is ridiculous. You know, what I treat as a cardiologist is the downstream effects of poor diet and, you know, and not to be taught what to do about that. I, you know, it's, it's educational malpractice, but we're taught to prescribe drugs. This is, this is, you know, this is the vast majority of our education. 
the guidelines, the guide that sort of determine and, and um, you know, tell us what to do, which the, the idea behind that is very sound, right? We have experts coming together. They analyze all the medical literature and they look at it objectively and they say, okay, based upon the best of our knowledge, this is what we should do for, for this condition. Okay. That makes sense. You, 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 you know, whether you're in Memphis or, you know, in Missoula, you want to be sure your, your doctor is, is giving you the, the same, the same advice, right? It should be standardized. It should be of the highest quality. It should be very thoughtful. The problem is those guidelines are heavily weighted towards drug based interventions because guess who pays for all the research? It's pharma. Right. So all the, you know, all the clinical trials that are that are being done, they're being done on Lipitor and Crestor and Resuvastat and sorry, and Repatha and, you know, and Levquio, all these all these drugs. No one's doing randomized clinical trials on broccoli. It's too expensive. It's, you know, it's it's too unwieldy. What's a dose of broccoli? <laughs> it's so so it's all drug based. So everything is driving um, prescribing. Can heart disease be reversed? Yes. Um, and so I want to be, you know, a little cautious. It's not like you can un- undo everything. But from the standpoint of blockage buildup, you can definitely undo it. Maybe not from a 90% blockage to a zero, but you can go from a 90 to a 60 which has tremendous implications for how well your body functions and, and how resilient your cardiovascular system is. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Now, getting there is not like just snapping your fingers. It's, it's an all-out prevention effort. It means, you know, you, you are physically active, right? You eat a whole food plant-based diet, all your risk factors are meticulously controlled, including using medications, you know, when when appropriate. So it's it's a really an all-out effort. But absolutely, we have documented reversal of vascular and coronary disease with aggressive risk factor modification. We've been talking to Dr. Elizabeth Clotis, and we'll be right back after a short break. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. 
You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Clotis. She's a cardiologist, author of the book, Slay the Giant, The Power of Prevention in Defeating Heart Disease, and founder of Step One Foods, a company dedicated to helping patients minimize their dependence on medications through strategic dietary change. Doctor, we were talking before the break about the role that doctors and patients play in our health. Mm-hmm. What role do big food companies play? Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is something I can talk about for hours. Um, you know, I started Step One Foods because what I realized was that the entire food environment is broken. It's broken. People walk into grocery stores that should be safe places and they are minefields. I mean, you know, honestly, we should be able to take any product from any shelf in any aisle, put it into our carts and feel good about it and think like someone's, you know, looked at this and really examined its health effects. Like none of that happens. You know, any health claims on on packaging are just claims. They're, you know, they're in many ways advertising gimmicks. And, you know, the, the proof is ultimately in the pudding. People aren't going to the grocery store to buy food that, you know, to make them sick. And yet our, our, you know, we are in an epidemic of chronic disease that is driven by nutrition. So I think I have to put some of, you know, some of this, you know, at, at the feet of, of food companies. Um, we are surrounded by nutrient-poor, calorie-dense foods that are made to be addictive, that are, you know, have very long shelf lives, ha- are cheap to produce, and are advertised constantly. Like, what could go wrong? Well, I'll tell you what can go wrong. You know, 875,000 people dying of heart disease every year, a heart attack happening every 40 seconds, right? <laughs> you know, 94 million Americans needing to be on statins. Like, that's, that's the effect of our dysfunctional food system. I'm still blown away by that number of 875,000 people a year. I mean, a million people. That, yep. That's just unbelievable. That's a large city. That's a large exactly. city every exactly. single year. Yep. Yep. So to your point about food companies, as those companies work, obviously, day and night to give consumers what we crave, you know, the sweets, the salts, all that, mm-hmm. what have they come up with? You know, in your <laughs> mind, what is the perfect food from their standpoint to win over our taste buds and keep them hostage? Well, if you ask someone, you know, like, what, what would a food company consider to be the perfect food, right? People will come up with, well, it's an apple or it's an egg or, you know, like, try to think of things that, you know, nat- nature prize. Like, no, according to the food companies, the, the perfect food is the Cheeto. It's the Cheeto. And you know why? Because it is bright orange and we are attracted to bright colors instantly. We love bright colors. And the flavor combination of the Cheeto has been consumer tested, you know, up and down. And it's the perfect combination of salt, sugar, and fat to, you know, 
set off every single dopamine pleasure receptor in, in our brains. And the crunch, same thing. It's perfect. It's not too crunchy. It's not too soft. It's just right. Again, thousands of people having, you know, participate in consumer, you know, feedback and machines testing crunch. It's not an accident. It is by design. And you know how when you crunch it, like when you bite it, it kind of disappears because it's so fluffy. There is an industry term for that. It's called banishing caloric density. It is meant to confuse your brain because the because you just bit something and it kind of disappeared and your brain said like, well, wait, did I eat something? Did I not eat something? By evolutionary sort of design, we, you know, our brain's supposed to go like, no, I don't think I ate anything like that just kind of went away. So, you know, so, you know, we don't really register how much we've eaten. And you know how you get that orange stuff on your fingers and, and you lick in between? That ensures that Flavor intensity is varying all the time, so we're never bored. So we're attracted to it. It's designed to be maximally pleasurable. We don't think we ate very much. It never. We're never bored of it. Oh, and it costs nothing to produce, like can last on shelves forever, and it's advertised nonstop. I mean, there you go, the perfect food. It's the Cheeto. It's that simple. It's the Cheeto. It's the Cheeto. There's a legal concept called comparative negligence. If we have a car crash because I run a stop sign, but you're driving out your headlights in the dark, a judge might say we're each 50% responsible for those damages. But as you look at the obesity crisis in America, in a hypothetical sense, what's the percentage of comparative negligence that consumers bear and what's the food industry share in that blame? Oof, <laughs> that's, that is, that's, a, that's a heavy question, right? I, to be honest with you, when I started out as, you know, in cardiology as a physician, I, I didn't have nearly as much compassion for my patients. It's like, well, you know, just don't eat so much. <laughs> but, but what I've come to understand is that the, 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 the game is, the game is fixed, I mean, the only way that food companies can continue to make a profit and expand and grow is either they get more people to eat their food, which is happening, right? We're exporting our, our, our wonderful eating habits all over the world, or and or get people to eat more of it. Well, we only have so much, you know, room in our stomachs. So, you know, we, we, we just have to kind of keep keep feeding, you know, keep kind of incenting people to, to eat this stuff. So I, you know, I, I now, I have to say, I now look at, at food companies as a big part of the problem. And just as with the physician-patient relationship, don't we have to go back to the question of individual responsibility? No one's forcing us to eat Cheetos. Yeah, no one's forcing us to eat Cheetos, but but you know, our the entire construct of our lives has has changed. If you go back, you know, 200, 300 years, I mean, our entire existence was focused on food, right? Growing it, preserving it, you know, cooking it, you know, saving it, um, you know, trading it, right? It was it was all about food. You know, 
fast forward to today, our entire existence is about being on computers and, and taking our kids to soccer games and, you know, and, and, and all sorts of other activities. Well, there's still only 24 hours in a day. Something had to give, and that was food, food preparation. We've sort of, we've outsourced it to others because we're busy with other tasks. The problem is we've outsourced it to, you know, to, to groups that may not have our best interest at heart. And, and this is what step one foods is trying to change. We, we are trying to show that you can make foods that are convenient, that are delicious, and that actually build health and not at an exorbitant price. You can actually, everyone, you know, you know, it's, it's affordable. It is, you know, it's easy to do. You don't have to change your, your, your entire life and it's convenient. You can still go on your computer. You can still take your kids to, to soccer practice. You're just eating in a way that builds, that builds health. And, and someone had to do this and I'm, you know, and I am so puzzled actually, that it took, you know, a five foot four inch, you know, base, barely 110 pound cardiologist in Minnesota to like try and start a movement. I mean, people talk about food as medicine. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of education happening, a lot of awareness, but actually to take the concept and, 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 and translate into, into a suite of products, no one's done that. And like, it's 2023. We've done it, but like we're one company. There's no one like us. It's amazing. I am so sorry. I have no idea what happened. My computer's never done that before. Doctor, do a lot of people sort of shrug their shoulders at the idea of eating better and taking better care of themselves simply because they think it's just going to be too hard on themselves? Yeah, you know, a lot of people have this mis misconception that you have to change everything, right? You have to be a yoga practicing vegan triathlete to even have a hope, you know, of, of improving your health through lifestyle. And that's not true. You know, one of the things that Step One Foods has, has proven is that even with tiny changes in what you eat, well, that's, that's where step one foods is concentrated, but I would argue the same for exercise, for, you know, for, for, for many different things, weight loss, you know, you can achieve amazing results over the long haul in terms of your health. With step one, all we ask is that people eat two slightly better, you know, things than, than, than what they're eating already. And they're, and they're the same thing. So it's bar, it's a breakfast. And it's just that, that these foods have been formulated specifically to deliver, you know, key nutrients needed to support cardiovascular health. And if you do that, even if you don't start exercising, if, even if you continue to eat your habitual burger at, at lunch, the vast majority of people will see significant cholesterol improvements. I mean, LDL reductions that are that are meaningful in 30 days. Some people even see medication level effects with in terms of LDL reduction, like 20, 30, 40% drops, which is crazy. And all you did was eat one little bar and, and had a different oatmeal for breakfast. Like it's it's astonishing what you can achieve. So don't, don't ever think that you need to change everything to have a, a, an important and positive health outcome. You also tell patients to only eat foods that their great grandparents would recognize. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? The best dietary advice I've ever heard is seven words long, right? We get all this competing stuff, eat meat, don't eat meat, eat eggs, grapefruit. Oh my God, don't eat grapefruit. Um, 
seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And what I mean by eat food, that's getting back to what your great grandparents ate. So food, real food, food that, you know, is, is recognizable. That's one ingredient or two ingredients or all the ingredients you, you know, they are, they are familiar, not too much. Don't stuff yourself. Mostly plants eat primarily from, from the, from the vegetarian end of the spectrum. So beans, lentils, leafy greens, fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, and seeds in their most whole and unprocessed forms. Like that's it. You want to eat some meat? Okay, but eat food, not too much, mostly plants. <laughs> you want to have some eggs? Great. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Like anything fits. You want to have a chocolate bar? Great. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. It's it, it applies to anything and to any condition. And regardless of what health outcome you are trying to achieve, whether that's to reduce your risk of heart disease, whether it's to reduce your risk of dementia, whether it's to reduce your risk of cancer, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. We talked about big pharma. We've talked about the food companies. Do you think insurers will ever cover food if they cover medicine? And if so, what would they <laughs> take out there? Well, this is my goal. So, you know, I am, I, I've got my little baton and I'm, and I'm marching and I'm, and I'm hoping to, to be leading a movement because if, if insurers will pay for drugs that treat high cholesterol, why wouldn't they pay for food that prevents the cholesterol from being high in the first place? It just makes sense. And some of the medications that we talked about, the, you know, those PCSK9 inhibitors at the, at the very beginning, you know, these injectables, these are super expensive drugs. They cost $5,000 to $6,000 a year. And all they do is lower your cholesterol. Well, five to $6,000 a year, that buys a lot of food. And food not only lowers cholesterol, it also improves your blood pressure, improves your blood sugar control, helps you attain a healthy weight. You know, food is the comprehensive solution to a complex problem. And it should be something that, that insurers not only are interested in, but actively, actively promote. Obviously, we're going to live a lot longer if we avoid a fatal heart attack. But you believe there are also four pillars of healthy longevity. What are those? Yeah, I talk about this with my patients all the time because they are so vital. There are communities around the globe where people experience exceptional healthy longevity. And if you look at them as a group, the common threads are that they exercise. They move their bodies every single day. The good news is they're not Kenyan marathoners or Ironman triathletes. It's not about extreme activity but it is about moving your body through space every single day. I would say at least an hour to an hour and a half of aerobic physical activity. It can be divided, doesn't have to happen all at once, but move your body every day. Social interconnectedness. These people have a tribe, they belong to a group, they have a social support system. And it's not about he who has the most friends wins, it's about meaningful human connections. We are social animals, we thrive when we have the opportunity to give and receive love. This took a huge hit during COVID, we need to get that back. Number three, these people are happy. 
They found joy and purpose in, in their lives. They have a reason to get up in the morning. And again, they're not doing outlandish things. They're not all building for houses for humanity, you know, but they're, they're, they're doing things that, that give them a reason to, to be, to be excited about being alive. And so if they like to garden, well, they have a garden. If they like to learn, they read. If they like to work, they keep working. And the last is, what is it that they eat? They eat a whole food plant-based diet. And it's back to what I said earlier, beans, greens, fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts and seeds, all in their most whole and unprocessed forms. That is the, is the foundation of their, their diet. Some are vegetarian, some are vegan, most consume some meat, some fish, some dairy. It's just way less. Fruits, vegetables, grains, plant-based foods, you know, comprise the vast majority of their nutritional intake. And that's it. And what did I say that's so brilliant? Actually, nothing, right? <laughs> Move your body, have some friends, be happy, eat well. There you go. That can fit in a bumper sticker. <laughs> as long as we're talking about groups of four, you also yeah. tell your older patients that there are four heart-healthy food groups that should dominate their diets. I suspect they're different than the four food groups we often heard growing up, carbohydrates, meat, dairy, and fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so there are four very specific nutrients that are essential for cardiovascular health and prevention of cardiovascular events. The first is fiber, and we talked about that, you know, in the context of, of cholesterol, but fiber helps bind cholesterol in the digestive system and eliminate it from, from the body. It also helps build a healthy gut microbiome, which has a whole bunch of other positive health effects. Omega-3 fatty acids, these are healthy fats that come from nuts and seeds and oils and fish and avocados. You know, these are these unsaturated fats are anti-inflammatory. They help raise good cholesterol, lower triglycerides, and typically lower LDL as well. They're also anti-inflammatory. Um, antioxidants, these are free radical fighting powerhouses that are found in fruits and vegetables, grains, plant-based foods. And for LDL, for example, the bad cholesterol to exert its effect, it has to be oxidized. Well, antioxidants prevent ox oxidization, kind of rusting of, of, of our insides. So the more antioxidants we, we consume, the, the healthier our insides will be. And finally is plant sterols, which are these natural plant components, actually the plant version of cholesterol, but, but they work in our digestive system to, to block cholesterol reabsorption and absorption, and, and they help help reduce LDL. So those are the four main building blocks of, of heart health. And, and the, those are the building blocks around which step one foods were formulated to make sure people received clinically meaningful amounts of these nutrients in just a couple of snacks a day. Are there also mental health implications that go along with feeding ourselves the right foods? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. You know, the, and it's very interesting. I think we are just at the tipping point of a lot of this research and it's related to the, to the gut microbiome. I mean, the very first thing that, that our foods encounter, <laughs> right, are, are a bunch of bacteria in, in the digestive tract. So the, so that bacteria kind of helps sort what, what goes in, what, what effect it has. Um, and it turns out uh, it, 
the gut the gut microbiome has a direct link to the to the brain i mean it sends out signals and and hormones and and messengers to the brain that will determine mood that will determine satiety all sorts of different things so what we eat has a huge effect on mood and what's interesting actually one of the you know and Look, I'm I'm a cardiologist. I formulated these foods for for patients, you know, trying to prevent heart disease and and lower their cholesterol. But what's fascinating to me is as they've, you know, gone out into the universe and more and more people are are using them, we get more and more feedback from customers saying like, "Did you put an antidepressant in here because <laughs> I feel a lot better." And I think part of it is the good fats actually. I think a lot of people don't get enough of the of the really good healthy omega three fatty acids, and you know, and and those are those are highly prevalent in our food. So absolutely, what we eat has a huge impact on emotional health and and our mood. And I'll stick with that for one more question. And I know that yeah. you're not a clinical psychologist, but how does a heart attack affect someone's mental health? You know, I would think it would affect uncertainty about their mortality, maybe lead to depression or anxiety. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, you you are right on. Um, you know, a heart attack, you know, often comes out of the blue. You know, half of all heart attacks happen without any warning. So it's it's the very first time you have a clue that you have a problem, and it's dramatic, and and it is your first true brush with mortality, um, and it is very common actually for people to suffer depression and anxiety as, as a result. I mean, it's scary and it changes your whole, you know, you were one person, you know, at, at 10 AM, 11 AM, you had your heart attack. You're a completely different person, you know, a week later as you're leaving the hospital, it, it is, it's a, and, and now you're on all these medications, right? Some of them, frankly, that impact mood, some of them that make you feel bad, like statins can make you achy, right? Like some, you know, and, and so everything has changed. And now you you have a disease that you didn't even know you had before. So it can have a huge mental and um, mental health and emotional impact. Absolutely. Very common. We have just about two minutes left. Your book, Slay the Giant, The Power of Prevention and Defeating Heart Disease, was first released in 2008. That was a long time ago, almost 15 years now. Yeah. I know device can become obsolete based on new information. Is the information of Slay the Giant still applicable in today's world? You know, here's the irony, but the information in that book is primarily around lifestyle. It's not about doses of drugs or, or anything like that. And it turns out, you know, good advice remains good advice. It is just as applicable today as it was then. My greatest, not regret, but but like some, a, a bit of sorrow that I have is that nothing's changed right? We're still, we're still not exercising as much as we should. We're smoking less, so that's good. But, but the rates of high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, excess weight, you know, these things that, that the book talks about and helps people overcome, they've gotten worse, more, more prevalent and rather than, than better. But it doesn't have to be this way. We have control 
over our health destinies and we should use that control because medications are an incomplete solution. They are just pretty wallpaper that we put up over crumbling walls and everything looks great, but we haven't fixed the underlying structure. The way we live is how to fix the walls, how to reinforce that structure so it never comes down. Dr. Elizabeth Clotis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me today, Chris. Lovely to be with you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.